Time to get do. His opponent coming down the aisle from San Diego, California, weighing 271 pounds, Jesse the Body Ventura. Jesse the Body, there he is, giving us a pose down here. Let's hear from the wrestler known simply as the Body. You bet I got something to say. You check it out. Son of a bitch is dug in like an Alabama tick. You're hit. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. This stuff will make you a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus. Just like me. Well, now it's 1998, and the American dream lives on in Minnesota, because we suck the world! Welcome to Dosed, everybody. You just heard some greatest hits from pro wrestler Jesse Ventura, the man who's lived many lives. My name's Abby Martin. It is Sunday, August 21st, around 1 p.m. Cali time. You know, probably one of the rarest qualities in a politician or media figure is honesty, sincerity, and genuine candor. When I first found out about Jesse Ventura, I knew he fit the bill, and I knew how uncommon it was for someone to navigate these professions while staying true to themselves. I've always really admired Jesse's clear-headed analysis, warranted anger, and dedication to the causes he was committed to, no matter the cost. And I always kind of felt that I was cut from the same cloth in the vein of what Jesse does. He's had quite the career from a Navy petty officer sent as an underwater demolition specialist to Vietnam, to running with the infamous biker gang, the Mongols, to becoming a wrestling sensation under the name The Body Ventura, where he fought Hulk Hogan three times and ended up in the WWE Hall of Fame. The Body was also a bodyguard for the Rolling Stones, went on to Hollywood to appear in several cult classics, Predator, Running Man, Demolition Man, but then he shifted to media and politics, hosting a radio call-in show, funnily enough, running for governor of Minnesota in 1998 and in a totally unconventional third-party campaign, won in a huge upset, then going back into media, hosting the show, Jesse Ventura's America on MSNBC, Conspiracy Theory on True TV, moving on to Aura TV, RT America, and now Substack. Jesse Ventura! It is such an honor to have you on Dosed. Thank you so much for joining us. And you are muted. If you are talking, we cannot hear you. Got to unmute yourself in Zoom. Jesse, 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 Jesse. Tyrell, uh, press the unmute on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, Jesse. Jesse, we were just talking to you, my friend. Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. You are still muted. 
It's in the. I don't have my. There glasses. you are. There, there you, you are. There you are. Jesse. You know what the problem is, Abby? I don't have my glasses on. <laughs> And so I couldn't read what 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 this screen was telling me I was supposed to do. I don't like these computers. I'll tell you, I don't like them. They're a trap. It's a, it's all a big None trap. Of them are, the the more technology progresses, the more stuff doesn't work. In yeah, my opinion. yeah. No, things actually work less than they ever have, and so it's I don't know about on. that, but. I kind of like my ignorance. Ignorance <laughs> is sometimes, like they say, bliss. I like and, it. Uh, well, you know, it's kind of weird because one time I was at Sirius Radio and I was in the, you know, the infamous green room where they take you to before you go on whatever show you're going to do there. And that's the way it is in all the studios and all that. And I was sitting in the room and there must have been a dozen people in there. And I looked around the room. And I was the only one not buried into a telephone. Man, that's how it is just everywhere now. Look, looking at one. Crazy. And so, you know what I did, Abby? I, I like, con, con, took control of the room. And I looked <laughs> at everybody and I said, has anyone else noticed I'm the only one here not looking at a cell phone? <laughs> and they all got kind of sheepish. And and I just kind of laughed it off and, and just left it at that to let them know, wait, come on, man. There's more to life than staring at these, you know, playing Star Trek all day. We go from one device to the next. That's what kills me. It's like once I'm done working for the day, I just go look at my, I'm like, what did I miss in the five seconds that I'm transitioning from my computer to my phone, <laughs> then to the TV? It's like unbelievable, man. Well, I'm 71 now, and I'll tell you, it's been eye-opening these last uh, last four or five years. truly has been the... You know, they say you're never done learning. That's true. And the other thing you'll find out is history starts to repeat itself now about every 20 years. Yep. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> let, let's go back a little bit, Jesse. You've had, you've lived sure. so many lives. That's what's so crazy yep. about you. I, I don't know anyone who's had such a multifaceted career span <laughs> that you have had. I mean, I knew, I knew you, obviously. I met you when you were in media. But, I mean, I just want to go back to, like, your Vietnam War days, because, you know, one of your heroes is Muhammad Ali. And yeah. You guys have such different backgrounds. I mean, you're famously a, a Navy Vietnam veteran. He's famously a Vietnam War resistor who went to jail for refusing to go. What was that wake up moment for you with just the absurdity of U.S. wars in general? Well, going back, it was a case, I guess I got to go back to my family. And I and I did not receive pressure. There wasn't pressure in my family. But everyone in my family served. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's interesting about that is at a time of war. And what's interesting about that is my mother and father were both World War Two veterans. And not many people can say their mom is. Wow. You know, many people can talk about their dads being World War II vets. But my mom was a nurse in North Africa, and that predated Normandy. You know, she was fighting Rommel and the, and the Nazis in North Africa before the Normandy invasion even took place. She was a lieutenant in the United States Army. Uh, and I can say this about her. She ended up, you know, being a nurse for her whole career. She ended up running surgery at North Memorial Hospital in the Twin Cities. But uh, she uh, she was a career woman before career woman was even fashionable. Man. And and I got a lot from her just as her my mom. Mm -hmm. And because her and my dad, did, they met after the war 
Uh, my dad was a sergeant. He had six bronze battle stars under Patton. Uh, he fought in North Africa, Normandy, Battle of the Bulge, Remagen Bridge, Anzio, and finished in Berlin and lived. Um, and they met after the war, and he was 40 and she was 30. So they were both not really inclined to get married like most people. And then when they did, they had two sons, my brother and I. And my brother was also a, a he's class 40, Bud's class 49, basic underwater demolition seal class 49. I'm basic underwater demolition seal class 58. Those aren't years, the year it happened. Those are just the numerical order of the classes and how they occur. Uh, the way it occurred for me was uh, I came home from school as a teenager. And I, I, I love telling the story. I walked in and my mom was on call working at the hospital. So dad had the duty of making dinner and all that stuff. And I came in and he was kind of washing the dishes by the sink. And I started telling him about how we needed to be in Vietnam to stop the domino effect of communism. You know, if we didn't stop it there, it would keep on going and down in and be end up in Mexico and be knocking on our door. Right. And I'll never forget. Because I, I, I like school. I believed in school. I was a swimming captain, uh, played on a championship football team. And I had a great high school and school experience in South Minneapolis at Roosevelt High School. And um, But I said to my dad why we needed to be in Vietnam. And I'll never forget, my dad looked at me and he said, is that what they're teaching you in school? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And, and I said, yeah. And he said, that's the biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever heard. Now, imagine what that's like being about 16 years old. You respect your teachers and what they're teaching you. And yet you're, you come home and tell your dad about a particular subject. And he tells you they're, they're full of bullshit. And I looked at my dad. I said, well, then why are we fighting the Vietnam War? And I'll never forget when he looked at me and said, I'll tell you why we're fighting it. Because somebody's over there making big money. Your dad cut to the chase, son, just like you. Well, that was my dad. He only went to eighth grade. He was a working man, you know. And uh, he said, because somebody's making big money. Well, then when I did decide to go in the military, my dad's only advice to me was this. He said, look, if you're going to go in the service, he said, go in the Navy or the Air Force. He said, because they'll, they'll hopefully teach you something that you can then continue with in your life. He said, if you go in the Marines or the Army, they're only going to teach you how to walk on gravel. You know, and so what did I do? I joined the Navy. And what do I do? Volunteer for probably <laughs> the most <laughs> difficult, without a doubt, the most difficult training the U.S. military has, basic underwater demolition SEAL training, or as they call it, BUDS. And uh, you end up going to the, 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 the unit that's got the biggest knuckle draggers of anybody, you know, <laughs> uh, of action. And, you're, and, and from that point on, I never wore really a naval, Navy uniform. I was wearing marine greens or a blue and gold or swim trunks or, you know, camis and things like that and, and didn't see too many ships from that point on except for small, fast crafts in the ocean or in the rivers. 
you know, so uh, as we affectionately in the Navy, we were part of what was called the Brown Water Navy. You have the Blue Water Navy, which is the Navy out at sea, and then you have the Brown Water Navy, which is the Navy in close. And of course, in 1962, President Kennedy realized it was going to be guerrilla warfare from that point on, small unit tactics. So he being from the Navy, came to the underwater demolition teams. He signed an executive order in 62 that allowed the Navy, the Navy could never go past the high water mark. From then on, it had to be the Marines. Well, Kennedy signed an order allowing the Navy to go past the high water mark over Marine objections, of course. But then that allowed for the formation of the Navy SEALs which what that was, they simply took the Navy frogmen out of the water and then put them on land. It must have been interesting doing that job. I mean, you went in oh. having no illusions about the Vietnam it, War, but you, well, still, but you still went. I mean, you still went. Well, it, it, the job, even not in war, yeah. the jo- if you go that into that nuts. business of, the, Navy, of the, the SEALs, you're going to defy death probably you could pretty well on a weekly basis for sure, if not generally on a daily basis. You're going to do something every day or every week where, I mean, being jumping out of airplanes, rappelling down sides of cliffs, helicopter rappelling, helo cast and recovery. And, and I'm speaking to all the old outdated stuff. I can't even speak to what they're, they're, what they're prepared to today, really. Well, you're no stranger to danger. I mean, you, you, the pro wrestling stuff is really crazy. I mean, a lot of people think the whole thing is just faked. Everything's scripted out and um, it's all theatrical, but you've, I've heard you speak about some pretty scary moments that you've had. Oh, there, it, 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 people need to understand. I, I got out of the Navy then and, and, and went on to my pro wrestling career later after, you know, exploring a few other avenues, but uh I love to describe pro wrestling in a simple form. It's ballet with violence. <laughs> <laughs> and I use, I, well, I use that terminology because in ballet, they're artists. They're tremendous athletes. If you look at people who do ballet, my goodness, they're phenomenal athletes. And wrestlers are too. And so it's ballet, except in Ballet, they generally aren't violent, where in wrestling, they always are. (laughs) But in ballet, like in wrestling, you have to create a character and become this like really charismatic, dramatic person as well. It's not just like the choreography that a a ballet person has to deal with. But you have to be creative and create a personality that that And you have to be able to communicate. Right. You have to communicate. Like many people, if we will take a big leap forward here, many people often said to me, how were you so successful in politics? And I said, easy. I was successful in wrestling. Hell yeah, man. Exactly. I mean, no. Well, look at it. In wrestling, in wrestling, what was my job? I was a villain. My job was to say and do things that would anger you, the general public, to the point where you would take your hard-earned money, go down and buy a ticket to see me get my ass kicked. (laughs) And you felt emotionally strong enough, you thought it was a good enough investment, and you'd feel great when it was all over to see Jesse the Body Ventura, finally somebody shut his mouth. (laughs) And And that was your job. 
That was my job. Now, transition that. What is running for office? It's going out, communicating and getting people to vote for you. Well, I got news for you. Most likely, it's easier in many ways to get them to vote for you than it is to get them to pay money to see you get your butt kicked. Well, what was some of your scariest moments uh, doing wrestling? Pro wrestling? Yeah. Oh, the probably the scariest actually, I think, happened. It was in Eugene, Oregon, early in my career in the territory days. Uh, I had wrestled, I don't even remember who, and I was heading back to the dressing room. The crowd's in a frenzy. Of course, the match was over, and a fight broke out at ringside. And the security guys with me were now lost between getting me safely back to the dressing room and getting uh, and you know going out and assisting to break up this brawl <laughs> that was taking place at ringside apparently because in those days of wrestling those things happened <laughs> and i'm <laughs> laughing about it because you can today you know <laughs> but anyway so i made the mistake i turned them loose i said you guys go ahead take care of that i'll get to the dressing room i only had a few little ways to go right so security took off. I was heading right to the dressing room, and there were, like, stands like you see at a high school football game, like the wooden seats you sit in. Well, behind the stands came this guy then, and he, got, and he came out between me and my dressing room door. He reached in and pulled out a big hunting knife that probably had about an eight-inch blade on it. And uh, now I can say anything on this show, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. He basically said, Ventura, I'm going to shove this up your new, your new, your, you know what? Damn. And he had, and he had a look in his eye. He was dead serious. And I knew I had a situation here that was getting critical quickly. And uh, my old Navy SEAL came out in me and I thought, okay, what are you going to sacrifice to this guy to subdue him? Because he's got a knife and he's probably going to cut you. Oh, but you're going to have, you, you may have to give an arm or something to be able to, uh, to you know, to eliminate him. And uh, at that very instant behind the guy, this guy dropped out of the seats, grabbed this guy, spun him around and had him handcuffed before you could blink. And you know what it turned out? No, you know what it turned out? It was, there was a plain clothes cop sitting in the stands with his son Whoa. who happened to look, look down and saw this confrontation taking place. Man. And he dropped out of the stands behind this guy and had him cuffed and subdued. And, and, and it ended up, they couldn't even do nothing to the guy. You know why? Why? He was 15. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, wait, that's, you would have taken him. Well, no, he was under. He was under age. Okay, well then that's good that you didn't beat the shit out of him because you could have gone to jail. Well, at that point, and someone's got a knife and it's dark like that, you're not asking them for an ID. Wow, that is not the story we were expecting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's one that that's one where I think you know where your life was really on the line. And then I had another one, a quick one, and. Uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, when I was teamed up with uh, the late, great Adrian Adonis, we were the East-West Connection. 
And uh, it had been a pretty rowdy match that night. And we were leaving to go out to the cars to head to the airport. You're at the Brown County Arena, which is right next door to the where the Packers play. And you come out this kind of tunnel-like thing to get to the cars. And as Adrian and I came out, you know, you're kind of down in a tunnel and people can, and all of a sudden two or three of these people jumped down and literally jumped us. And it's dark. But you're like giant the, professional yeah, right. wrestlers. I mean, such a, oh, yeah. But, they're, but <laughs> that's they're like mo- part of they, the challenge. They, fans, fans got motivated in them <laughs> early days. You know, they, they, they took it very seriously. You, why do you think most of us wrestled under an alias? If you were a villain, you couldn't use your real name. Man. You, could, you had to. That's where I'm not Jesse Ventura. Yep. That's my professional name. And, and but, but I use it now. I have it copyrighted and everything like that to me, you know. But uh, no, anyway, Adrian and I beat the crap out of these three <laughs> or four people, left them laying there, right? We get to the promotion the next day and Wally Carbo comes up screaming at us. It turned out they were all minors. <laughs> I was going to make that joke, Again? but... Uh... <laughs> No, and, and, and I looked at Wally Carbo, the promoter. I said, Wally, they jumped us. What am I supposed to do? Ask him for an ID? You know, I'm defending myself out there in the dark. Well, the good thing that happened, it never went to court or anything because the Brown County sheriffs came forward. Apparently, these kids were drinking underage, and they had thrown them out. Man, so then from and that so, point forward, did you? <laughs> you must have. Well, been we really... were we were off the hook then because Jesus they were under influence Christ. of alcohol, and all. But other than that, no, that's how you lived your life then. Everybody liked to call wrestling phony and all that, but when you beat the crap out of somebody, all of a sudden you're a trained professional who can go to jail for it. Yeah, right. It starts to become very real very fast once you're out of the ring. Man, let's... Uh, that, <laughs> you, gave him a, you gave him those kids a cool story, though. Yeah, you know, right. No, for the rest of their story, life, right. they're I like, I dude, I got pummeled by the body. I mean, what's so well, crazy Well, I is... don't know. There's there's three or four of them out there that... Uh, yeah, Adrian and I beat the hell out of them. Well, hopefully they learned their damn well, lesson. Well, we beat them up enough to where they couldn't do nothing to us. They didn't want no more of us. I want I want to move on to Hollywood um, because this is sure. this is so crazy. Okay, so first of all, the new Predator movie's out. You've endorsed it. It seems yep. really cool. I started to watch it last night, but I passed out. Um, but um, you, I mean that that's probably your most well known role. And what I liked about the concept of the first one is like it references. I mean, all the Predator movies kind of have the same current of native peoples in pre colonial times had already fought the Predator alien. And so this is cool that like the whole movie is now bringing you back to that lore and and keeping you there, which I found really cool and I can't wait to um, continue it. But what I thought was also really funny, Jesse, is I in the process of researching for this interview, I found out that you were you had a much bigger role in Demolition Man. You were like one of the main bad guys that Sylvester Stallone had to fight at the end. But a lot of the scene or I guess the whole scene ended up being cut. And the reason is because the film was considered too long for, get this, being a few minutes over two hours. Like, what? I mean, compared to today's standards, that is like, I wish that every film was cut to two hours long. Holy shit, I feel like films are now like three... I mean, it's hard to find a film that's two hours. It's like crazy that back then they were like, all right, 
let's cut this awesome fight scene because we got to get people in and out. Yeah, well, that's what happened. Uh, Sly <laughs> and I had a knockdown drag out, you know, in uh, a very good fight scene. And it ended up on the cutting floor, which, you you know, it happens, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I'll tell you another quick story. Uh, I ain't got time to bleed had been cut. No shit. What? <laughs> oh, yeah. We're doing Predator. It's like five what? seconds. I mean, that is the quote of the movie. It's now my movie. It's not Arnold's anymore. You know, yep. people identify Predator with I ain't got time to bleed. You know, my line, it, it wasn't going to be shot. Here's the backstory. At the end of filming, this always happens. Money budget concerns take place. And when you get to the end, all of a sudden scenes start getting eliminated because they're running out of money and they don't want to have to go get more. Right? So they had they had cut the I Ain't Got Time to Bleed scene with Richard Chavez and I. It wasn't going to be shot. I was brokenhearted. Richard was brokenhearted because we were the two legitimate veterans in the film. Richard served in the Army. I served in the Navy. And we wanted that scene together because we were both veterans. We, we really wanted to do that scene together, Richard and I, because of that status. And it was cut. But then call it the gods of filmmaking struck or Montezuma's revenge, whatever you want. Arnold <laughs> got sick. Oh, shit. I didn't know. Yeah, Arnold got sick on the set. He couldn't work. He, he got bedridden. You're down in, we were shooting in Mexico. You know, most people get Montezuma. I never got it because I'd spent 17 months in Southeast Asia and the doctor told me I was probably immune to everything. But uh, 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 Arnold got very sick. And so I was on hold and they called at the hotel and said, Jesse, can you be at the set within the hour? I said, I'm on hold. What for? They said, we're resurrecting. We're going to do the I ain't got time to bleed scene. Arnold's sick. See, when Arnold went down, then they had to start resurrecting scenes because time is money. They're not going to shut production yep. down. Yep. They'll start shooting other stuff. So they brought the I ain't got time to bleed scene back simply because Arnold was got sick. And Diarrhea. so then we went and shot it. And I knew it would end in the film and end up in the film. Here's why. Because it's a badass we, line. Oh, no, it isn't that. Here's why I knew it would end up. It wasn't that at all. Here's how I knew it would end up in the film. John McTiernan, the director, he's one of these guys that he doesn't throw out compliments. He's very quiet. He shoots a scene, and when he's done, he just moves on. Where you have other directors like Paul Michael Glazer, he'll come over and pat you on the back, give you pep talks this, that, and whatever. It's just the style and how different people direct. And when we shot the I Ain't Got Time to Bleed scene, when it was over, John McTiernan was standing right behind me, and he turned around as he was walking away, and he burst out laughing. And he had never shown any emotion through any of the shooting. Right there, I knew that scene is going to end up in the film because if it can make John McTiernan <laughs> laugh, it's going to make everybody laugh because that wasn't, you know, that was just John's personality. He, he wasn't a big laugh type guy. You know, he was always very businesslike in, in, in what he's doing. And, uh, and so when that scene got resurrected and ended up uh, really stealing the film pretty much, they even printed T-shirts of it. 
20th Century Fox did. I ain't got time to bleed. The iconic, iconic line from an iconic film. I mean, well, Jim and John Thomas wrote it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it didn't come from me. I went off the script. Yeah, but still, you delivered it, and I think that that's the most powerful part, Jesse. You know what also helped me get the role, what? don't you? What? Because I because at that time I chewed tobacco, <laughs> and the and the Blaine character in the script chewed tobacco. In fact, when I went into the casting call with Jackie Birch, she said to me, "Can you chew tobacco?" It was the first thing she asked me, and I reached into my top pocket and pulled out a <laughs> can of Copenhagen. You just spit it on the <laughs> floor. You're like, "Can I?" Um, well, well, what's, well, what's amazing? I want to move. Wait, wait, wait! I want to move on to your. There's so much to talk about, Jesse. Wait, wait, wait! No, Abby, I gotta day. tell you this Go for one it. now. Go for it. Okay. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Remember the famous scene where I spit on Carl Weathers' boots, <laughs> Apollo Creed? Of course. Okay. Do you know how we shot that? That was shot in a helo, and both of us couldn't be in there at the same time. They had to shoot me spitting, and then they had to shoot Carl receiving what? the spit. Yeah, because you get the cameras and yep. all that. So they had to split you. So all morning long, <laughs> I was spitting into a cup, you know, because we had to have a lot. And so I also took Red Man chewing tobacco because that's real juicy. So I had Copenhagen and Red Man, and I'm chewing into a cup. We got it about two-thirds full, right? styrofoam cup oh, God. and me and joel silver the producer joel goes how can we make it even worse and i thought for a minute i said i can tell you how joel he goes what what can we do i said go get go over to the kitchen get me a couple eggs we'll put a couple oh, egg whites God. in there too <laughs> so we went and got two eggs broke the egg whites <laughs> we poured the egg whites in with the spit and so what you saw was me spitting legitimately <laughs> And then I'm gone. Then they do a reverse angle. And one of the people sits there with that cup. And when it's time, they throw it on Carl's shoe. Good thing it was only on his shoe, man. That <laughs> was a gnarly cocktail. I think you, I think you deserve I a visual effects credit. Yeah, right. For the egg here's, white my bra- <laughs> here's my bragging rights. Who else in the world could have spit on Apollo Creed shoes and have him do nothing about it? Yeah. Hell yeah. Another claim. Only thing, Jesse man. Ventura could. <laughs> so Jesse, no, Carl, Carl Jesse. And, I, and Carl and I today are great friends. We were actually over in England together oh, wow. at a sci-fi convention. Well, what's amazing is you not only had these under your belt, these iconic films, this huge wrestling career, then you defeat I mean, first, I don't think a lot of people who know about your maybe they do, but I certainly didn't, is that you were first um the mayor. Of Brooklyn yep. Park, Minnesota. You served for four years there before you ran for governor in 98 and won in an extremely un- unpredictable race. I mean, it was it was insane. And you were saying before about like this kind of unconventional character build that you had for your pro wrestling career that really did kind of seamlessly integrate into your political success. And here's a here's a perfect example how your political ads were fucking awesome let's check one out <laughs> let's check one out right now mike play it up. and just uh for people obviously everyone's just listening just this is a uh, basically a children's action figure commercial but with a little <laughs> figurine of jesse ventura not in his wrestling gear but in a suit 
New from the Reform Party. It's the new Jesse Ventura action figure. You can make Jesse battle special interest groups. I don't want your stupid money. And party politics. We politicians have powers the average man can't comprehend. You can also make Jesse lower taxes, improve public education, and fight for the things Minnesotans really care about. This bill wastes taxpayer money. Redress it. Don't waste your vote on politics as usual. Vote Reform Party candidate Jesse Ventura for governor. I mean, that is just unbelievable. I mean, you ran as an independent, but what's so amazing about this era, Jesse, is that you had much more progressive social views than most Democrats at the time. I mean, certainly more than Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. You were pro-marijuana legislation. You were pro-gay rights. You were pro-abortion. How weird was it to be this figure who was just like, you know, paving the way and like advancing so many things that it took all these right wing Democrats um, like decades to kind of adopt. Well, you know, as simple as it is, that's where all my friends and people in Minnesota are. Mm -hmm. You know, I was merely, you know, that's who I am. And the majority of people I know in Minnesota, that's how they think. And so as far as the rights go, see, when I ran, I was fiscally conservative. I think government generally does goes beyond what they should do. And so I'm fiscally conservative, but I'm socially liberal. And that makes it where you can't fit in either party because you have to be either conservative, conservative or liberal, liberal. And uh, I believe most Americans sit where I sit. They're fiscally conservative. They're socially liberal. I don't want government going above and beyond what it, the scope of what it's supposed to do. But on the other side, I also understand that we're in a capitalist society, but you can't survive totally on capitalism. There must be a degree of socialism, and you must blend the two together. And when you, if, if and when you can reach the right formula between capitalism and socialism, you will have a tremendous country then that uplifts everybody where we all have a chance. And that's really my, my view and my political position. And it remains the same today. I don't like government sticking their nose in my private business. I don't think government had any business telling you what, whether you can use or not use drugs for that matter. That's your business. Uh, there was a thing. Here's what it is, Abby. I ran under a simple thing when I ran, and you know what that is, and, and governed. You can't legislate stupidity. <laughs> People are going to do stupid things. You can't take every stupid thing they do and make it against the law because every law costs money to implement. And we, I, when I won governor, I walked into this one department and there was an entire wall full of books in there my first week. And I inquired, what is this? And they told me, those are all the laws of Minnesota. Oh, my God. And I stepped <laughs> back. Burn them. Throw them in the fire. Wait. I stepped back. I said, wait a minute. They tell you ignorance of the law is no excuse. I said, we're supposed to know all this shit. Get reading. Well, and, and then you know what I know. You know what I tried to do? Wait, you know what I tried to do, but I couldn't because I'd have to change the Minnesota Constitution. I wanted to float that every third year, 
or every other meeting that, that, that the representatives could come in. They couldn't pass any new laws. They could only rescind old, outdated ones. Nice. I like that. And There's you know so what? One of the laws, ones on wait, the books. one yeah. of the laws that, I, wait, one of the laws I got taken off the books, you know what it was? You can't wait, bring you a horse this. in like a bath or something. There's like all these weird no, 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 no. <laughs> Worse, old people were only allowed to play bingo one night a week. By law. <laughs> what? It's like some anti Honest to God, I, I never looked at it to see what governors signed that into law i really oh I, I, I got society's falling apart from this everyone's at but the i bingo wanted lounge. to know what governor signed that into law and so we pulled it you know what i did i called a major press conference to announce it <laughs> today we've you can't we're, we're we're here's what i said i said we're taking a chance that the elderly will accept responsibility that we're going to allow them to play organized bingo more anytime they want. And we're hoping organized crime doesn't get a foothold. <laughs> I love it. Oh, by the way, and you know what else was in the law? What? The top prize. Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> well, the big prize for the night after the old people have bingo in the old folks' homes. Yeah. Yeah. You know what the big prize of the night by law had to be? What? You got head of the chow line privilege. What? Who on earth? What kind of, what kind of person? <laughs> and, and, wait, and it takes money to implement any law. All right, let's, let's abolish I'm the government. To, I'm, that's I'm what on I'm board. getting to about smaller government. I'm on board now. You, you convinced me. <laughs> it would have been funny if me. after the repeal of the law, it became really out of control. And there yeah, was yeah. Like a huge like uh, bingo addiction problem in the Gambling retirement ring. I mean, well, your legislator, legislature was against you because your time in office was really difficult. I mean, you vetoed 45 bills they sent to your desk in just... The first year, I want you to kind of tell us what you were truly up against and how hard it really was to get things done. Well, you wanted to it do. wasn't it wasn't hard to do anything. We got a lot done. We revamped yeah. the entire property tax system. I gave back rebate checks three out of four years. We did a, a put in the first light rail system, mass yep. transit in the Twin Cities. We got a lot done. Here's why. I had a Republican House and a Democratic Senate. Mm -hmm. Generally, whoever I sided with prevailed till the last year. Then the last year, they jump in bed together. See, that's why if I got elected president right now, Abby, I could bring the country together within three years. Just like Minnesota. See, because in three years, the Dems and Repubs would be in bed together opposing me. Is that an announcement for the 2024 election? No, <laughs> but I'm just throwing it out for food for thought. No, it's, it's not an announcement. Absolutely not. But I'm just telling you, that's what I can accomplish because that's what happened in Minnesota. Now, the vetoes, those took place because I believe every bill should stand on its own. Mm -hmm. And when special interest starts thrown in, those vetoes are also line item vetoes, which I had the power for. So when they'd throw something in a bill that had no significance to that bill, it'd be gone. That's how I that operate. That makes sense. I mean, but the media was quite against well, your... Well, you got to remember, like with campaign. my son Tyrell, Abby, yeah. I keep reminding him of this. 
He's in the presence of a genius. <laughs> Just as you are right now. You know why I'm a genius, Abby? Why? I have something called common sense. And in today's world, it's so rare it makes you a genius. That's true. That's true. That's <laughs> now true. you can laugh. <laughs> because, I mean, the media is afraid of common sense. They want, exactly. to, they want to shove something down our throats and you kind of defied all logic, right? Common sense. When you got into office and were actually doing things in a bipartisan fashion. Oh, there were so many things I still wanted to do. That's why I regret in some ways not seeking a second term. But I wanted to change Minnesota to unicameral, one house. In the state level, you don't need two houses. In fact, it violates the Constitution, if you look at it. It's supposed to be one person, one vote, right? Well, in state legislature and all these states, you're one person, but you got two votes. You got a representative and a senator. Well, you could have easily won a second term. And like you just said, I mean, you you yep. chose not to run again. This is kind yep. of unheard of to give up political power willingly. Most people would do anything well, to hold on to that. Yeah, there's multiple reasons. Uh, first and foremost, and I, I'm honest with this too, the money. Mm -hmm. Well, when I took over as governor of Minnesota, and people need to know this and hear this, I was paid $120,000 a year. That was the governor's salary, right? Now, I, they give me a big mansion on Summit Avenue that I can live in, and I get a car too, right? Okay, I still have to pay taxes on that $120,000. <laughs> plus, wait, 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 plus all use of the governor's car other than during the workday, they subtract mileage. And it's taken off your check. What the hell? Oh, yeah. So, like, here's what I told them. I said, okay, if that's the case, I'll drive my private car to the Capitol. I'll switch to the governor's car. I'll drive that all day. And then I'll go back to my private car and drive it home so that I don't get charged no mileage. Public safety commissioner comes in. Charlie Weaver, governor, you can't do that. Well, why not? Well, that's the car that has all the safety, the radio, the weapons, everything. You got to be in that car. So it's a catch weapons. twenty-two. Wait, wait, wait! Weapons. You have weapons in your car as governor. You damn right you do. What kind? Some rocket cool. launchers and shit. Uh, I preferred an H and K MP5. Damn. But then again, I have a Navy SEAL background. <laughs> wait, so every the... every governor is driving around with a? I don't know. I do not know what every governor does. But damn, that's so funny that you were <laughs> all just willing I know to give that up. Is, You're like, no, all no, no, I know is they asked, <laughs> All I know is they asked me for my preference of what weapon I wanted in the vehicle. And I told them I wanted an H&K MP5. Man. And they said, okay. <laughs> so you, so, so, I mean, well, anyway, all, you weren't given, you weren't given enough money. And you okay, weren't given enough that freedom. is the point. Yeah. It's a catch-22. They make it. See, then he said, well, you've got to be in that car for safety. So then they charge you to ride in it. So that comes out of your check. Now, it don't end there, Abby. Every meal that me and my family ate in the governor's residence is deducted off my paycheck. Okay. That's so here's the, here's the end results. 
at the time I was governor, I was in charge of a $16 billion biannual budget. I was, and by the time taxes, mileage, and, and, and food, <laughs> meal deductions were taken out, I was being governor for 50 grand a year. A $16 billion budget. Now, if I were in the private sector, what do you think my salary be being the CEO of a $16 billion company? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why everyone takes lobbyists. Well, money. that's why, that's why the you have corruption so in government. Yeah. That's why government's corrupt. We're not paying people enough to do it. And that was one of the major. I was going broke. I, ha, I, I can't. My lifestyle requires more than 50 grand a year for four years. That is, so I mean, then I got criticized because I took jobs yeah. on the side. Wow, you're like I have to work several jobs to be governor. I got to take on, I got to moonlight yeah. down well, the street. Well, I, I did the XFL for Vince McMahon on the weekends, and they all yelled at me for that. And why? Never once in my four years was the Capitol open on the weekend. Couldn't go to work. Now a normal person, a normal person, they would pat you on the back and say, "Wow, look at that guy." He's holding down two jobs to support his family, but not Jesse Ventura. When he'd go on the weekend, if I bailed hay at my ranch, no problem. 50 cents a bail, do that all weekend. But if I go do the XFL on Saturday night, which the state had to pay nothing, Vince McMahon took care of the whole tab. I made sure of it. Well, then there's outrage. <laughs> That's so wild, man. I mean, no, no wonder, no wonder people just welcome the showering of money from corporations and private donors. It's like, it's crazy. I mean, do you think it? I mean, first of all, I know it was really rare for you to have that victory. I mean, it was pretty amazing. I know that Ross Perot was like a pretty well. Let, let's let's talk about it now because I want to compare. Sure, you winning. You know why? How I won? How? Well. Because first and foremost, um, I think the same scenario is going to be out there in 2024, even more so. If we end up with Biden and Trump, I think it's wide open for a third person can win the whole thing because 70 percent don't like either one of them. But look at what they uh, did to Jill Stein, man. I mean, they they literally accuse her of being a Russian agent for Jesse Ventura, Jill Stein. Yeah, man. I mean, I would rock that. Jesse Ventura I would rock that ticket. Bill Stein. See, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just using me as an example. I understand what they did to Jill and they try it with me too, but you know, you just fend it off. But uh, uh, no, it's, it's prime for it right now. And I'll tell you how I won in Minnesota. Yeah. And tell I us how you Min- think it could happen again, because now they, they basically label anyone who's running as a third party as like Russian disinformation agents and people who are kind of fomenting the, you know, radical discontent oh, in this country oh, and, and accelerating sure division. After. And it just seems impossible well, sure how, come- how marginalized they've made third party candidates today in the wake yeah. of Hillary's well, demise. Well, I'm, I'm sure they would probably come after me for working at RT. Mm-hmm. And but see, I have a counter for that. They forced me because of my court case with Kyle to do that because mainstream media won't hire me for nothing. And they don't want to re-resurrect the Kyle case, do they? <laughs> I don't think so, you know, because it showed the wrongdoing that happened in that. 
And uh, uh, anyway, though that aside, uh, it's it, I knew I I knew I could win number one because uh, we have same day registration in Minnesota. You can register and vote the same day. Uh, we we trust our people. There's no there's no voter fraud here, just as there was no voter fraud in the last election. You might have had election fraud attempted, but you didn't have voter fraud. Voters don't do that. <laughs> it's hard enough. It's really laughable. You're lucky to get fifty percent of the people even out to vote. Yeah, let alone now millions t- of, of And now you're going to tell me that there's people out there with bags full of voting and things that are disrupting boxes. the elections <laughs> and stuffing ballot boxes. That's the biggest crock of BS I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so you think the right person can come and capture it? Because you're right. I mean, everyone Absolutely. hates both of these parties now, and Biden hasn't delivered yep. a goddamn thing. Well, Biden has lately has scored a little, and uh, and and you know, uh, but the whole thing comes down to is the fact, in my opinion, that uh, it's like Ralph Nader said: you got the two-party dictatorship, right? And and until we break that, uh, we're never truly going to be empowered in our country. And I think I think the forward party has a shot to be able to do it with Andrew Yang and the people that they're getting on board. The thing, you know, for me, a lot of people laughed at me when a couple years ago when I said, I'll run, but I want Howard Stern as my running mate. And people thought I was joking and what a laugh. And no, there's Jesse again. No, I was dead serious. You want to know why, Abby? Why? Here's why. Howard Stern could keep my integrity. My integrity is I don't take special interest money. I never have. When I ran for governor of Minnesota, I only raised three hundred thousand dollars. The Dems and Repubs combined spent twelve million. Oof. I won. I, ra- I raised with fifty dollar donations. Here's why: if I, if Howard would have run with me, we could have did it. We would have won. I I'm telling you. First and foremost, Howard's on serious radio. They're not governed by the federal feds. You can stay on there right up to the election. (laughs) You can use it as your platform. Then think how clean Howard would keep me. All Howard would have to do is say, Jesse and I need 50 bucks a piece. Send it to us. How much money you think we'd get? A lot of small donations. Damn right. And that doesn't and that don't get in the door. A fifty dollar donation, I can assure you, will not get your foot in the door. It'll be appreciated, it'll be well spent, but it's not gonna get fifty bucks ain't gonna get you to access. Like when I became governor, the first thing I told my staff, I said, I do not meet with lobbyists. They didn't elect me, they have nothing to do with me. Tell them to find new jobs. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, do you understand, Abby, why I was unpopular? Yes. I took an entire industry and trashed it. The lobbying industry. And that's and what I Congress, never, Congress spends half their time on the phone with lobbyists today, preparing for the next yeah, election. E- exactly. And see, that's where I could beat these guys. The public with me will see someone who is actually looking out for them and, and not being paid behind the table by anybody. Because I, ne- I have never taken one dime of special interest money. Well, Jesse, we... Whether for mayor or governor. And, and now getting back to Stern. 
Yeah. Here's the most important thing with Stern. Not only could you use this radio show as the platform, you could raise money, you could do everything, but here's the big reason. As president, I need a VP who's so despicable, they'll never kill me to put him in office. <laughs> Follow me? So who's going to assassinate Jesse Ventura and put Howard Stern in? That's a good strategy. That's an there you go. That's See, an he's an insurance one. policy. That's a good you know where I learned that from? <laughs> where? Charles Barkley. When I got out of office way back in 03, <laughs> now get this. No, no, no. When I got out of office in 03, this was before Obama was even on the screen. It's 03. Charles came to my getting out party and I made the statement that night having fun. I said, if I ever run for president, I said, I'm going to take Charles Barkley as my running mate. They took the mic to Charles and Charles goes, Governor, I think that's a great idea. You know that I'm fiscally conservative. And he said, if I run with you, we can get rid of the Secret Service. And now oh, bear in mind, Obama ain't on the screen yet. And, oh, I, and I fell for it. I said, Charles, how could we get rid of the Secret Service? Charles looks up in the mic and says laughingly, because there ain't nobody going to kill you and put a black man like me in there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I thought for a moment, he's right. He's exactly <laughs> that's, right. That's actually he hit the nail brilliant. right on the head. Well, there's several things. So you've got to have a VP. You've got to have a VP who's despicable. Jesse, there's several (laughs) things that happened to you that made you kind of persona non grata in the in the corporate media. I want to get into Chris Kyle in a second, but let's talk about how the next year after you left the governorship, you began a weekly MSNBC show called Jesse Ventura's America. I mean, this was a this is a crazy ass time. This was the lead up to the Iraq war pretty nuts to give you a primetime spot as the person you are. I mean, I'm shocked they gave it to you in the first place, knowing that they couldn't control you. But the show was canceled after only a couple months because of your opposition to the Iraq war. And I guess, tell us us the inside story. Tell us the inside story. It was canceled even before that, Abby. Tell me what happened. That was a throwaway when they put me on Saturday for three or four weeks in a row. We had already been canceled. No, here's what exactly went down. I came out of office in 02, and I was the hottest commodity out there. 03, I guess. It would have been January 03. I was the hottest commodity out there. MSNBC, CNN, and, and Fox got the bidding war for me. MSNBC won. At the time, they were kind of like Fox Light. They hadn't gone completely liberal like they are now. They had just hired Phil Donahue, the famous daytime guy. Phil was on. He was their highest rated show. They were, now they were bringing me in. Now, here's the interesting things, you know, that they, they're bringing me in. And uh, Phil Donahue likewise opposed the invasion of Iraq. Now, this is like February and the buildup's happening. And I told them, look, I want my show to happen from the Midwest. All we see is the East Coast and the West Coast. It's time for a show in the heart of America, the Midwest. They agreed. I had the power. I had the poll in. So we're shooting the show in Minneapolis and St. Paul and we're building up to it. And one of my subordinates that worked for me at the Capitol for four years and was now working on the show with me, uh, John Woodley, uh, he got this call, and here's the essence of the call. 
Um, is it true Governor Ventura doesn't support the invasion of Iraq because the buildup was happening? And Woodley goes, oh, no, he's a Vietnam veteran. He says it's Vietnam all over again. He's vehemently opposed to it. Uh, second question, does Connecticut know about this? And I assume what they meant there was at that time, MSNBC's primary owner was GE, General Electric. And in case you don't know, they're a major war contractor. In other words, they're going to make billions of dollars if we go to war in Iraq. Well, does Connecticut know about this? And Woodley answered, I don't know. Here came the third and important question. Is there any chance he changed his mind? <laughs> what? And what? Woodley said, Woodley goes, I don't think so. He said, I've seen the governor change his mind only because he was ignorant on something. And as he acquired more knowledge, he got a different opinion. But I said, this is war. He's a veteran. It has nothing to do with him being governor. This is a veteran talking. He ain't going to change his mind. Well, I was supposed to have Rachel Maddow spot. Whoa. Oh, yeah. 7 p.m. was supposed to be Jesse Ventura. Well, what happened then? Uh, they, they threw me on Saturdays for three or four. The show then died. And they basically, I had signed a contract. Oh, and they pulled Phil Donahue because mm -hmm. he was against mm -hmm. the war. And Phil was their highest rated show. Have you ever heard of a network pulling its highest rated show? Never. They pulled Phil. They wouldn't allow me on at seven. I did a couple weekend shows and then I was gone. And they paid me the entire three years. I was under contract. So I couldn't do any news shows or no satellite or cable TV anywhere. So in essence, they had me bound and gagged for three years. They paid me all three years. I signed the contract. I had to honor it. So they silenced Jesse Ventura and Phil Donahue for three years. Wait, 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 wait. This is this is nuts because most people don't realize that this is what they do. They cancel your show, essentially, and then they Basically, um, they they silence you even after you leave. I mean, this was a really critical time that your voice was needed the most. This was a sea yep. of state stenography, and they they basically put tape over your mouth and prevented you from doing any news or like any. I mean, were you able interviews to do like no, interviews? No, I couldn't go. Basically, I couldn't go on TV unless I got a part in a you know a sitcom. <laughs> oh my god so wait it I begs the question any... it begs the question yeah. did they did they tell rachel maddow i mean i guess she she accepted the iraq war <laughs> oh yeah well here's the deal i was fighting with them already because when we were starting to do the show they the, every day what here's what happens they send down the topics these hosts don't have nothing to do with it uh they would and you know what they wanted me covering and i used to, i fought with them day and night for three weeks as long as it left they wanted me doing lacey peterson oh my god the murder and i said to them yes that's a tragic murder but there are ten thousand murders a year in the united states why is this one special well because the media made it special they're in the entertainment industry were you just absolutely pissed that the contract no silence god you? no i yeah. got rich they signed, me, <laughs> they signed me to a three in fact 
I I went to Mexico and in Mexico, wait a minute, Gabby, in Mexico, you name your houses. They're called Casa whatever, right? I came within an eyelash of naming my Mexican home Casa MSNBC. They bought it. Oh, my God. Oh, and, and, and that's a hilarious just um, comparison to how what you know we both worked at RT America. I think you had a similar yep. time that I did, where you, I mean, you wouldn't have worked there unless you were able to say and do whatever the hell you wanted to with zero censorship. You made that clear from the get go. What yeah. is your like reaction? I mean, everyone depicts Russia today as this cartoonish thing where it's a hundred percent propaganda with no merit. And then it goes even further to claim that it really brought down Hillary in the 2016 election with the DNI URG? report. Yeah, and the DNI report. Oh, they a, talk that's about a, that's, that. That's, but like that's you worked propag- at both. You worked at that's both. That's a propaganda joke. Yeah. It isn't a joke because it isn't a joke. It's serious. But that's a total laughable that RT. The only thing RT did that affected those elections, they held debates. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, what's, what's the matter with that? They held debates for third-party candidates. They gave them a platform. To me, that's the American way. That was the threat, Shoot. Jesse. That was the threat. Oh, I know that. And, and, and you know, and it's ridiculous. I, I, in fact, I'll tell the story. Before I signed with RT, they flew me and my wife all the way to Moscow for the 10th anniversary thing. Putin was the keynote speaker. I met Gorbachev that night, too. Uh, Putin came over to me. I was sitting there. He came to me after he was done, held out his hand, and he said, thank you, Governor. I said, you're welcome, Mr. President. And he said, I want to assure you, you will have complete control of your show. No one will tell you what you do or say. I said, thank you. I appreciate that very much. And he left it at that. I can only say he was honorable to me. Because for four years, they didn't censor me, and I talked about anything I wanted. Yeah, and then you quit right when Russia invaded Ukraine. You were like, all right, I'm out. Oh, no, I didn't quit. What do you mean? I didn't quit. I was taken off the air because of our sanctions. Oh, Russia okay. didn't so, take me off. So was it Aura? No, what Aura, I had a fallout with them, and that's when RT took it over completely. I was working for Aura doing off the grid and RT picked up that. Right, right. And then I had a then I had a fallout. That's Larry King's company. Yeah, yeah. Then I had a fallout with Aura and RT came in. Right. For some reason I thought they were for some reason I thought they were still syndicating um Oh no, no, they weren't at all. No, I was so so you were there to the bitter end and then till RT seized productions from the sanctions. Yeah. Well what happened was I did my last show, and three minutes into the show, I don't know if it aired or not in Moscow or Russia. Three minutes into the show, I stopped it down. I looked right at the camera, and I held my finger up. I said, stop this invasion. Stop the bloodshed. I don't support anyone invading any other countries. End it now. Now, I have no idea if that aired in Russia or not. But I did it on the last show, and the next day, uh, uh, DirecTV took us off. The banks wouldn't allow any money to exchange hands, and essentially RT went bankrupt. So it was the sanctions, believe it or not, that took me off the air. Russia did not. Well, I like that you you know, you know, were still able to speak your mind till the bitter end. Well, I don't know. Happened. I don't know if that aired or not, right. but I did it. 
You know, it is funny that U.S. sanctions took off an ant of someone who is uh, criticizing Russia for the invasion. Yeah, (laughs) in the name. Yeah, no, uh, isn't that ironic? That's the exact thing I thought was. Geez, here I'm a sanction. What do you call it? Injury. And and I, you know, what I said was the same as basically what Arnold Schwarzenegger said on that thing he sent. Well, this is this is super important, too, because then you saw the mass censorship, all of our content being purged. And I I had plenty of critical content against Russia, which is also ironic to pull a bunch of, you know, critical content about Russia's, you know, incursion into Crimea, the Ukraine situation. And it's just gone forever, Jesse. And a lot of that was radicalizing material that, you know, was really timeless. Sure. And so it's just it's just unbelievably infantilizing and childlike to have our reality told to us and dictated to oh, yeah. us by these people. And, you know, when it comes to this war, I want to know what Putin's saying. I want to know what Russian media is saying about it so then we can end it, right? We're just told now exactly. everything's, everything's filtered through, like, the Western lens, Exactly. It's, it's, you know, I, I, I'll tell you this, honestly, I loved working for RT. You know, I really did. And uh, like I said, they never censored me at all. I said anything I felt like saying, and we had our show down to clockwork. It was, it was, and I don't know if you know this, Abby, but they came out and gave me a studio right in my basement. Oh, hell yeah. Bergita's our good friend of ours. She loved, she loved working for you. It seemed like a real sweet, sweet gig man oh it was it was it was probably the i would tell you this in all honesty it's the sweetest gig i think i ever had wow i really did and that's why it was so heartbreaking to me you know and then i had to go through what do you hear what happened then then i lose my health care right oh man and i'm on blood thinners wait till you hear this shit i go down to get my blood thinners and i lost my health care because rt what happened my blood thinners went from $25 a month to 500 Excuse me? Blood thinners? Yep. So like, even even when it, you're getting that shit in Mexico? Or is it just U.S. prescriptions? I don't get it in Mexico. I get it here. <laughs> wow. It has nothing to do with Mexico. Wow. It's it's uh, the one that Arnold Palmer advertised. Um, God, I always forget what it is that they got me on uh, Wait, so this, this not, has nothing to do with pre-existing conditions or anything. This is just the straight up the cost of the pills. Well, yeah. The minute I lost my health care and had to buy them directly at the drugstore, it went from $25 to 500 Unbelievable, Jesse. And then I had to go on Cobra until I can get my social, or uh, Medicare and all that stuff and s- tap into one of these supplemental deals or whatever you got to do with them now. So see... Losing my job at RT, and now this is the second job I've had where a war has caused me to go on an unemployment, be unemployed. Unbelievable, man. I mean, Jesse, I want, I mean, there's so much to say about that, but I I have to touch upon the kind of the evolution of conspiracy theories because you, you have such a, I mean, you have such a fascinating career trajectory and you've covered so much and you've always been you know an ally of like good critiques of power that were bipartisan i remember i went on your show 
when I was at RT, I was, you know, heralded as this kind of anti-Russian hero, but then I kind of turned it against the mainstream media and started criticizing their warmongering, their corporate sponsorship. And then I got chewed up, spit out, and castigated as a crazy lunatic, unhinged oh, yeah. 9-11 truther because I didn't fit the mold of whatever they were trying to do, promote me for speaking out on RT. So it didn't go their way, but of course I got unfairly fairly maligned. You know, you remember, you... These people are pathological liars. The, the post 9-11 era was a time of actual a lot of bipartisan critique from a lot of people in Hollywood, a lot of liberals who were questioning the official story of 9-11. You have questioned the official story of 9-11. A lot of people don't remember how many people were out there before it got kind of swept up into this partisan lens i would say like it's weird how conspiracy culture has now become kind of hijacked and mainstreamed only folded into the right-wing trumpism people like marjorie taylor green it's very strange you know and but back in the day jesse you people like you were out there as well as a lot of people martin sheen ed asner i mean questioning what we were told and now it seems well, you like you're, to. and now you're nuts and and basically saying oh you what you think every mass shooting was staged you think covid is fake i mean it's just so weird how you can't no, separate these things you can't but yeah, i mean no, it, isn't it I, strange you know where i'm going with that oh yeah well see that's a, that's a that's a method to get away with it to lump everything the crazy you they they have to put the crazy theories with the legitimate ones to make the legitimate ones crazy Mm-hmm. follow mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. and that that's done by design it's as simple as one time I, I i happened to tell barbara walters of all people i said barbara i had done her show the view and we were done and it was over and i told her because i had written my book on kennedy and i said barbara it's as simple as this i said think of this a moment every lone nut assassin they teach you all three of their names. Mm-hmm. Like Lee Harvey Oswald, John David or Chap, Mark David Chapman, uh, whoever the other ones all are. And I said, and then I looked at Barbara Walters after going through this litany of so-called lone nut assassins. I looked at Barbara Walters and said, now, Barbara, tell me Charles Manson's middle name don't know it yeah what is it exactly catch the psychology of it that that singles it down to one person there can be a thousand lee oswalds but how many lee harvey oswalds mark david chapman uh whoever but uh but uh they they always do it with three names well uh uh uh, uh the uh the guy that killed uh lincoln Oh, uh, fuck, it's slipping my mind. Uh, they didn't yeah, do a good job mind-controlling me because I forget his name. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, he had three names, too. Yep. Well, so <laughs> what, what was pro- it? I mean, it is it is true, and I have a lot of questions about JFK. Of course, you know, that that is just reeks, the whole story. But, I mean, 9-11 well, yeah. is so big, Jesse, and you were out there yeah. really sticking your neck out, and it's so crazy. Oh, I paid a how... price for it. Yeah, let's I talk. I paid a price what, for it. What What do you think? Like, is is the biggest problem with the official story? Well, the biggest problem. What do I think is the biggest problem? The yeah. sole biggest problem: Building Seven. Mm-hmm. That's the sole biggest problem because it was never struck by a plane. How can it collapse in forty seconds? 
and not be assisted. Yeah. And the and, and the 9/11 commission there wasn't one word about building 7 in the entire commission's report. Well, like you were and saying, half of America, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, half of ahead. America, half of America today, I say to people today, are you aware that a third building went down on 9/11? Half the people I will speak to today will look at you in wonderment and go, "No." <laughs> So you've got half of America has no idea that a third building went down at 520 that afternoon. There, I mean, there's so many crazy things, Jesse. I think the the 9-11 commission who comprised it, I mean, they wanted to appoint Henry Kissinger, this, this oh. known worn criminal. Well, look you, at what's you, his name, Quit. Yeah, no, of course. He quit, said this is a cover. Right away. And he you, said, I remember you, you said something really poignant when I was on your show. We we talked about why was everyone promoted? Why is it that the biggest intelligence, quote unquote, failure in the history of this country, everyone's fucking promoted? Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Exactly. That's a pretty well, big fuck up. Why, yeah. <laughs> here's, here's why. Here's why. Because if if you're if if you're fired, if they fire, which people should have been fired. Mm-hmm. This was our multi-billion-dollar air defense system failed so miserably, and not one person lost their job. But see, here's why: if someone gets fired, well, then they're going to be pissed off and start talking, and all of a sudden, that's going to start a little fire going, and pretty soon, this talker starts another talker, starts another talker, and pretty soon, you got people then telling what they know. So you simply fire no one promote people and it disappears into the history the failing upward of all the people who were just complicit at one level or another letting all this go on letting it happen having the wires intentionally crossed you know i want to ask you about the evolution of conspiracy theories too because do, do you think it's strange that you know you had Trump was using people like Alex Jones. I mean, he had Roger Stone on Alex Jones every other week being like, hey, Trump is the kind of dropping hints that he was a secret 9-11 truther. Very strange stuff. And you saw this kind of folding in of Alex Jones's audience into Trumpism. Now you see people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, a sitting congresswoman, talking about these things. But it again, yep. it's all hyper-partisan, right-wing. All the Democrats are secret commies wanting to kill yeah. The, I mean, it's super weird. It's like it's like the anti-communism from like the Cold War now coupled in with this weird conspiracism that is hyper-partisan, anti-Democrat, anti-left, which is super weird because I, I remember growing up, I remember watching Alex Jones 20 years ago, and this was like I, I, a lot of leftists were involved in the movement that questioned deep state you know, state power. And this was a bipartisan movement. And now it's kind of you're associated with right wing fringe lunatics. If you question these things, including just government narratives about war and Ukraine and coups and just how have you seen that evolve as someone who had the show conspiracy theory and who's been outspoken about these things? Well, first and foremost, we we let's be straight on conspiracy theory. It's called entertainment. Mm hmm. Conspiracy theory was not a documentary. We weren't attempting to make a documentary. I'll give you the background. Conspiracy theory came about. We were sitting in a room in L.A., my old agent, Mark Itkin at William Morris, and uh, somehow the subject got on to Kennedy, and I started going off on a tangent 
as I usually do with, uh, you know, the whole Kennedy thing. And when I was done, Mark Itkin looked around and everybody and goes, people, this is a television show waiting to happen. And so we went on from there. And originally what we were going to do with the show, we were going to show both sides of the conspiracy, hopefully, tell both sides. And then at the end of the show, you, the viewer, could make a choice on your own of which conspiracy held more water or are they equal or whatever you wanted to get out of it. Well, when we got into production, many of the conspiracies, of course, dealt with the government. And when you deal with the government, you're going to get no cooperation whatsoever. So therefore, we ran into that brick wall in production of how do we tell their story when they won't talk. So the show then evolved to, well, screw them. We'll just tell the conspiracy and let the people look at the whole conspiracy. If the other, if the government don't want to defend themselves, that's their fault. We'll just then do the whole conspiracy and let people at the end, I'll make a comment, let people at the end decide if, for themselves if they want to believe it or not. And that's where the show originated. That's how we got rolling. We landed eight, I think it was eight shows a year. And uh, we lasted three years. The second year, they let me do Kennedy because they promised me. They said, I said, if we get to a second year, promise me you'll let me do Kennedy. And we did. And we did a couple shows on 9-11. And we covered a lot of very interesting, interesting topics that many of them have seemed to evolve into truth, which doesn't surprise me. Because in, cop- in going and looking at what was going on, it, the, what was going on was real in a lot of cases. And now the realism has come out. Like the weird one was the one we were doing where we had the guy, uh, General Stubblebine. He's the guy that was the movie Talking to Goats is all about. That oh, one right. movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. We managed to get Stubblebine up to interview him on That's a different wild. topic. And he had this, his woman or his partner or wife, whoever she is today, she was along too. She went on this thing talking about that there's going to be a pandemic. There's going to be mandatory vaccines. She said exactly the year that they would happen. It had nothing to do with the story we were doing, but it was so bizarre. We decided to leave it in when we got to editing. So we left it in. Lo and behold, she was like Sadie the soothsayer. It all came true. Yeah, but Alex Jones has been saying that forever, too. It's like all about the well, mark of the beast and the I, chip I, is the I, vaccine okay, getting and to all Alex, that shit, you know? Getting yeah. to Alex. We used Alex because at that time, Alex was a good go-getter. If you needed to know about a multiple number of conspiracies, Alex knew who to talk to about them. He knew the people involved in them in many cases. So Alex was actually a good asset to the show. In mm-hmm. fact, we used to refer to him. Do you remember the old uh, uh, David Soul at uh, Starsky and Hutch? No. Oh, well, there was a TV show called Starsky and Hutch, two detectives, and they had a black street guy on the show, and they called him Huggy Bear. <laughs> and he was their guy they got info from. He was right. like their informant. Well, we used to refer to Alex on our show as Huggy Bear. Like if we had a question or needed mm-hmm. it, we'd say, oh, Get in touch with Huggy Bear. He might know. And then somebody get in touch with Alex. And then we brought him in and let Alex do a couple cameos. 
where Alex and I split immediately was when Trump came onto the scene and Alex went full head over heels, 100% supportive of Donald Trump. I knew better. That was the minute I cut Alex Jones out of my life. But but so many millions of people went with him, Jesse. I mean, were you surprised at this kind of adoption and integration of conspiracism and critique of no. the deep state and stuff and folding into like right wing no. propaganda? No, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Well, what do you think about it? Uh, it's scary yeah. that there are people out there that, uh, you know, that will that are so now entrenched that they will believe something without doing their own independent studying of it. And the other scary thing about today is the Internet. People are taking the Internet like it's like it's uh, factual and they need to understand something there. There's no facts on the Internet necessarily. You have to do your own investigating to find out what you're reading if it is indeed a fact. Because you can print anything on the Internet. Oh, and absolutely. To, and, and I think that's part of the problem is so many people have evolved to getting all their information from the Internet. And a lot of the information they're getting is probably not necessarily good information. Right. Right. No, I'm, I know people they get who think everything. And... I know. I know people who think everything fake is real and everything real is fake. It's it's pretty wild times, Jesse. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's a strange times. It's like I said, I'm a genius because I have common sense. In today's world, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Well, let's talk about COVID really quickly because you had yep. you had a, an interesting take on it because a lot of these people um, have kind of jumped down the rabbit hole, gotten red pilled, as they say, from COVID. A big pivot was, you know, a lot of wild theories there, like the vaccines are what causes the surplus deaths, not the virus itself, or that COVID is just a huge globalist plot to implement this kind of great reset biosecurity grid. Um, you have, you've talked about the vaccine. You've talked about getting vaccinated. You've talked about COVID quite a bit on your show. What is your opinion on COVID, the reaction by the government and the theories that took on a life of its own about the virus? Well, to me, again, you got to go back to my background. Mm -hmm. My mom was a nurse, spent her whole life in surgery and doing traditional medicine. And that's my that was an important person to me. It's like I kind of laughed when they brought out the mask regulations and everybody under the sun is saying, oh, they don't work. And no, why do we have to wear them? And I sat and looked. My mom wore one every day of her adult life, damn near. She was in surgery. And if they don't work, here's what got me going. (laughs) I remember I was a little kid and I went down and this tells the story of Jesse Ventura a little. I was a little kid and I went down to see my mom at work at the hospital and she had the mask on. And I remember it. She, she came out and the, she had the mask down then, but she still had it around her neck. And I said to her as a kid, I said, mom, why do you got to wear that mask? And she simplified it and looked at me and says, well, it stops germs. I said, oh, and then I go on a radio show and I got all these people saying masks don't work. So I said to them, well, then my mom lied to me. Is that what you're telling me? That my mom lied to her son? That masks, and why would they require my mom to wear one if they don't work? Right. See, and it's that simple. And and to all these people that fought masks, I tell them, well, the next time you have surgery, 
tell the doctors and nurses they don't have to bother with a mask. After all, they don't work anyway. See what kind of response you'll get at the hospital. <laughs> yeah. If you go in for an appendectomy or knee surgery or something and you tell them, oh, you don't have to wear them. They don't work. Now, so I'm not anti-vaccine per se. I've had some troubles with it. Vaccines made my daughter uh, special education affected my daughter because they required that DPT shot to go to school. And she had an adverse reaction to it and was one of a very few children that do, but it does happen. It's very unfortunate and no one takes responsibility for it because you'll never get anyone to say the vaccine caused it. So there are problems with vaccines, no doubt about it. There always will be. There's problem with all medicine. What Everything you do and take, there's an upside and there will be a downside. And people need to understand that. Yeah, it seemed like. Okay, COVID here's another example for you, so, Abby. Yeah. Abby, here's another example for you. Steroids. Now, they can make you big, strong and powerful. So why shouldn't everybody just take steroids and be big, strong and powerful? <laughs> well, because there's a flip side to steroids. They also have many alarming side effects that can and ultimately could end up killing you. So people need to understand there anything you take and do medically, there's going to be an upside and there very likely could be a downside. You see, what I do, I simply play the odds usually, which is the, uh, and for me personally, the va- uh, I got vaccinated. I got the second shot. I've been boosted twice. I still wear masks in the stores when I go inside. And guess what? I haven't caught it yet. Wow. Oh, my God. You're like one of the only people I know that hasn't caught COVID. When? Why? Because I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> there you go. Gee. And, and, and Abby, I'm a genius. I'm doing common sense. Well, you're defying and, all and a logic. Genius, and a, now I better knock on wood because I probably will travel around and probably catch the damn shit. You know, I don't know. Well, but I haven't caught it yet. And I, and, and I actually did an op-ed piece. You'll love this. I did an op-ed piece talking about the masks. And I said, all you wusses out there. I said, you want to talk about masks? I said, try being a Navy frogman where you got to un- go underwater for literally hours at a time with a, a hose in your mouth and a mask on your face. And you're 30 feet under the water. What, you're saying then masks tell- aren't oppression, Jesse? The- what I'm saying is, give me a break. <laughs> Wearing a mask, what, into the store? And that affects your uh, personal, uh, uh, you can't take it, and it affects your uh, rights as an individual. I find it humorous. Now, a few months ago, is the only time you could ever walk in the bank and see seven people wearing masks. Yeah, right. I mean, it makes going to protests easier for me, at least. <laughs> Everyone can wear a mask. Oh, I just, it, you know? I just laugh at the people if they, if they have to do something that, oh, requires them out of their, you know, thing a little bit. Oh, it upsets me. How can I get by wearing a mask? You know how masks to me, they gave me freedom. If I kept my mouth shut, I could walk in the store and nobody bother me. And then I wouldn't have to talk to people that I probably didn't want to talk to anyway. There you go. 
has a benefit. Uh, uh, You're damn right it does. Well, Jesse, I know that you you have limited time. We're we are a live show. We were gonna we are going to take some callers. If you want to stay on the line for sure, a couple callers, ahead. let's yeah, do it. Let's rock take it. Take a few callers. Yeah, let's check it out. All right, so I'm gonna and keep your keep your comment short, please. We have a lot of people on the line, so we're gonna kind of try to fly. Yeah, don't these. swear at me either. No swearing yeah, at no Jesse. No swearing, Jesse. Uh, sorry that we dropped some, <laughs> some swears. In the, in the and uh, we will ask that uh, because we have a special guest today. Keep your comments and questions related to or for. Mr. Ventura, and we're actually going to skip someone in the queue right now. Sorry to the person who's on first, but uh, Ronwell's Avi is a picture of Jesse Ventura. So we're going to put you on first. Ronwell, take yourself off mute. Tell us where you're calling from. You are on mute still. You got to press a little mute button in the bottom right there. That happens a lot. Hey. Ronwell, you're on. All right. Hello, Jesse Ventura. <laughs> Hi, Ronwell. How are you? I've talked to you before. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> you know each other. Yeah, no, I talked to you before at <laughs> the clubhouse, and yeah. So, um, in in um, uh, about the Predator movie, um, um, right? Um, um, there's a child celebrity out there who watches you on the Predator movie. His name is Joey Hilliard, right? And he's and he said. He's seen it four times and he loved it. There you go. Well, great. I, I, I'm glad. And like I said, there's the new Predator movie. It's very good. And it takes you. Actually, I think the new Predator movie should have been the immediate sequel. Right. Well, thank you very much, Ron. Well, we definitely need to check out the new Predator. Let's hear from yeah. Brady. Uh, Brady, Brady always has some good stuff to say. Brady, what's up? What's up, Uncle Jesse Ventura? I, you embody the real Uncle Sam to me. You are so much my hero, along with guys like Mike Presner, Abby Martin, of course, my hero. Y'all are my heroes. I appreciate this so much. Thank and um, uh, something I just want to give back to Jesse is the vocabulary word Donald worshiper. Instead of calling them Trump supporters, we can call them Donald worshippers. They hate it. And um, oh, really, is that what you? That's what they. That's what you, to piss them off. Call them Donald worshippers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Really, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it sounds really close to devil worshippers. I think. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Donald worshippers. Really? Well, you know, I'll tell you something. No, on a serious note, everyone, if you want to see what Trump is doing and his whole method of attack and all that, I can tell you where you can go to learn about it. Yeah, where? Go read book. Go read books on 1930s Germany. Oof, yep. Oof. So true. Go go um, go! Educate yourself on what took place in Germany in the 30s, and you will see the playbook of what's being attempted here. That is so brilliant. That actually brings me to my next point that I was going to bring up: is the uh, Cambridge Analytica and Emmer data are basically doing work like military psyop kind of German style propaganda for Donald Trump. And it's leading to the Ukraine war and stuff like that. And that was one of the criticisms that you get from the right is that you kind of ignore the, um, uh, they say deep state stuff when it comes to like January 6th, mm -hmm. um, you kind of blamed the, um, which I mean, we all blame the, the idiots that all took the bait and stormed the Capitol. But uh, they were kind of upset that you didn't really turn your criticism towards the deep state more in that. And I would just uh, 
steer you towards Whitney Webb's critique. Well, what exactly? Define the deep state for me. Yes, that's what, the unelected well, Give me a government. definition of the deep state. What is yeah, the deep the un, state? The, un, the unelected government like the CIA and the FBI who commonly take people who are weak-minded and put them in situations where they can be labeled as a terrorist. And then the FBI come in and swoop the bad guy and say, oh, look at us. Look at what a good job we did, you know, taking out all these crazies in Waco, for example. Um, okay. So that's kind of, I think it's kind of a Waco so, situation. Well, well we what you're talking about is what, is what uh, uh, what's his name wrote about in the secret team, kind of. Fletcher yeah, Prouty. And, yeah, and, and that's just the one legitimate criticism that I think came from the right. Some of the criticisms that come from the left, and I've been paying attention to both sides for this because I love you to death, but I figured you might you, – you appreciate a little bit of paideia. You're a, you're a tough guy. You can handle a little bit of paideia, right? You're not afraid of criticism. But the left, uh, the left would just like you to see you use a phone, maybe be a little more hip with the technology. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you Get know? on social media more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so good to have you here. We we need your voice so much, you know. And I was wondering if there might happen to be a younger person who you would endorse and maybe use your platform and your voice to kind of uh, get behind. That might be kind of a a, a, a young person option. on the political scene right now. Yeah, anyone. I mean, I'm I don't know. I don't know who that joke. would be. You know, I I don't know who is standing out right now. As 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 a you know, I'll tell you who I liked. I like that girl from Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Tulsi. Uh, yeah, t- yeah, I liked her. You know, and they railroaded and got rid of her quick. <laughs> yeah, you know, Tulsi. <laughs> Tulsi was an interesting character. And to Brady's point about the January sixth thing, um, you know, I, I heard Michael Flynn calling for like a coup. I mean, I he he literally was a QAnoner. He was calling for an, basically what happened. And so there's only so much that feds underground on, you know, could have agitated to cause what happened to happen. So Martin I Taylor Green, Alex Jones here. Yeah, it's like Marshall, it's uh, like I calling his office. For you know what I mean? So, I, so I don't I know. What do you think about that event? I think that absolutely January 6th was an attempted coup. And it was for a much simpler reason than what everyone's looking so deep at. It was a coup because they were attempting to stop the peaceful transfer of power, mm-hmm. plain and simple. They wanted Mike Pence to go there, disrupt it, and say that he wasn't going to accept some of the delegates voting and throw it back into the Congress or whatever to where the Republicans and Trump, and then Trump would have the ability to come in probably and declare some type of martial law. Funny enough, even Alex Jones agreed with that. He was like, I, he was like, it could have been a lot worse if they got a hold of Mike Pence. You know, they had the gallows erected. They were chanting. You're damn right. It could have. (laughs) As much as I'm not with Mike Pence politically, Mike Pence saved the country that day. In my opinion, because if he'd have gone there and take with the orders and carried out and attempted to do what Trump wanted him to do, the country would have been thrown into a civil war of turmoil with Trump still in charge, declaring martial law. And then who does our military going to follow? Yep. Yeah, military is tightly aligned. It would have caused total chaos, and that's what Donald Trump. I'll tell you this: fought each other, but a split in the military. People can say what they want. Have you ever? Have you heard Trump's niece talk? The psychologist. Yes, I have. She is so dead on with him every time she talks about him. 
She knows him psychologically. She knows him personally. She knows how he ticks. Every time she's on the air, she talks about what he's going to do next and this and that, and she's dead on with it. And I think the other guy who knows what he is, he's capable of is Cohen. Mm-hmm. And he gave a scenario. Do you know what Cohen said? Why he wanted those documents? Why? He wants those documents. He wanted them so he could use them to defend against any type of arrest if they came to arrest him. He could yeah. bargaining chips. If he's got top secret documents that they don't want put out, he's got bargaining chips Very Trump to save his ass. Very Trump thing to do. Um, we got another caller on the line. We got Jeff. And this Jeff. is this is going to be the last caller just because we, we got to let Jesse go on with his day and we got to do some stuff as well. So thank you so much. Sorry about everyone sure. on the line. Jesse, we have one more caller and then let's plug sure. what you're doing now. Jeff, what you got for us? Uh, <clears throat> thank you for taking my call. Um, Abby, I love you. Um, thank you, man. I, you dosed me with uh, Israel. Um, nice. I used to... Um, not really know, understand that. And being a teacher, I'm in Michigan as a teacher and not really not. I, I could actually be fired for Palestine. It was crazy to think that. But um, sorry. Anyways, uh, Mr. Ventura, I loved you as a wrestler. Um, Predator is one of my favorite movies. I hope you I, I hope you I would vote for you for president. I would love to see that. Um, <laughs> but, Thanks, but don't <laughs> hold your breath. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> But uh, I didn't have a question. I just, uh, my first time calling in, I, I love you. And I just wanted to say that. But randomly, a friend sent me a video this morning uh, about Predator. Did Arnold Schwarzenegger really pay the wardrobe assistant to make, or to show that your your biceps were bigger than his just to win a bet? <laughs> that really happen? No. No? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that got, you know. Somehow that got started through the rumor mill of Hollywood, but not at all. I mean, let's be real here. Arnold Schwarzenegger won Mr. Olympia seven times. Well, that means you're the best built man on the planet. Now, my arms at the time, maybe they could have been tape measure bigger. I don't know. But you got to remember something. At the time of Predator, I still weighed 255, 260 pounds. Arnold probably weighed about 220 to two and a quarter. So I outweighed him by 30 to 40 pounds. So when you start talking, pulling out a tape measure, I could have bigger just because I'm a bigger person. Uh, But when you look at the form of the arm and the muscularity of it, he's the best built man in the world at that time. Seven-time Mr. Olympia. No, that's why he never – Arnold never suffered from uh, any feelings of, of insecurity on a film that somebody can – you know, he wasn't insecure about Jesse the Body Ventura. Not a bit. And so now that's just crap that went on where to make things interesting. It probably stemmed from – I pulled a rib on him because Arnold is very gracious. He brings a gym with him and he puts it in a conference room of the hotel. And anybody that wants a key, he passes them out. If you want to go work out. Well, I used to go work out on purpose early in the morning before the set call 
get pumped up. And I'd always make sure I'd get there five minutes before Arnold would. And I'd shake water all over my t-shirt. So <laughs> think I'd been there for an hour and I was sweating like crazy. And I'd be doing like low pulls or something when Arnold would come in and Arnold would walk in with his big bodyguard, Sven. And Arnold would look and go, Sven, we better get up earlier. Who knows how long Jesse the body's been in here training. You know, so Arnold would start getting up five minutes earlier, so I'd have to get up five. So we ended up getting about an hour and a half earlier than we had to for a while. Because each day we'd arrive earlier at the workout before going to the set. But the stuff about the arms, that's just a cannon fodder, food for diets. Who knows? Arnold was the Arnold was the best built man in the world. Case closed. Love the call. <laughs> what a funny story. It seems like it was a real fun time on the set of that movie. Jesse, I oh, want to yeah. let you go because you've been oh, such a good sport staying on with us. Uh, you moved Thank over you, to Abby. Substack. It was my pleasure. Oh man, it was so great talking to you, Jesse. Plug your we'll Substack. Plug your Substack for our audience and whatever else you're doing okay. right now. I'm. I and my son had to leave RT. But you can find us on Substack now. And Substack is a perfect place for me. Why? There's no control but me. And I'm talking on there. We're writing on there. We're doing interviews on there. I did a great one with Andrew Yang that everyone, you know, putting Jesse Ventura with Andrew Yang, that could be trouble. And uh, and so uh, uh, I'm on Substack. I encourage everybody, go to Substack. That's my new forum, and the name of the show is Die First, Then Quit. It's an old SEAL saying, but it applies to me and the fact I'm going to die before I stop talking. Jesse, it's been awesome. Love you, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Abby. Love you, too. Hang in there. You, too, my friend. Die First, Then Quit. Jesse Ventura's new show on Substack. If you're listening live right now, we have another call-in show tomorrow, Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time with Christopher Ryan, author of groundbreaking books, Sex at Dawn, which many of you may have heard about or at least heard referenced, and a newer book called Civilized to Death. That's going to be a super fun, dosed conversation. So join us tomorrow again live. Thanks for getting dosed, everyone. Appreciate you tuning in. We'll talk to you tomorrow.